Thank you, Brother Jared, for doing a wonderful job leading us in our singing this morning. And thank you to all of you for being here this morning. Thank you for your love for the Lord. Thank you for your wonderful singing. Thank you for your love for the Bible and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It's been a wonderful day of worshiping God together. And in this portion of our worship, we're going to study the Word of God. And so I want to direct your attention, please, to a passage of Scripture that was read for us in our Scripture reading this morning, Acts 17 and verse number 6. Acts 17 and verse number 6 is from the New King James translation. Here the Bible says, but when they, the they there, they're talking about opponents of the gospel. When they did not find them, the them there is a reference to Paul and Silas, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. I really want to highlight that statement that is made at the end of this verse. These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Let me ask you a question. Can you imagine, can you imagine people saying this about us today? I mean, can, can you imagine people saying this about us today as we live in, in, in the valley? I mean, can, can you imagine us being so vocal and so evangelistic and so zealous about spreading the message of Jesus that the people in Phoenix or Tempe or Scottsdale, or Goodyear, or Mesa, or Chandler, or Gilbert, they say about us that we are turning the world upside down. They say about us that we're turning this part of the country upside down. This is the kind of impact that the people of God were having on the first century Roman world. In fact, these particular words were actually uttered by opponents of the gospel in the city of Thessalonica. The city of Thessalonica. The city of Thessalonica, located at the top corner of our slide, was one of several cities that the Apostle Paul visited on his second preaching journey. It was a very old city. It was actually founded about 300 years before the birth of Jesus by one of the generals of Alexander the Great. Many of you know that I grew up in a town called Nacogdoches, Texas. Nacogdoches, Texas is not only a town that has a name that is very difficult to say, but it is also a very old town. It is actually the oldest town in Texas. It was founded in 1779. That was a long, long, long time ago. But let me tell you something, the age of Nacogdoches is nothing compared to the age of Thessalonica. I mean, Thessalonica is so old that it predated the birth of Jesus by about 300 years. It's so old that it was around 300 years before the Apostle Paul showed up to preach the gospel. It is a very old city, and it was also the capital city of Macedonia. It was also a very wealthy city. It was a commercial trading city. The famous Ignatian Highway ran through it. It also had a port. 
and an amphitheater, and it actually was the largest city in the region of Macedonia. There were about 200,000 people who lived in this city. Now, I realize that to us today, that doesn't seem like a lot of people, but during these times, in the times of the Roman Empire, that would have made this a very large city, and like many of the cities in Macedonia at this time. Thessalonica was also loaded with idolatry. Thessalonica was also loaded with vain worship and sexual immorality, and there were many temples dedicated to false gods all throughout the city. All of these things played a factor and the Apostle Paul wanting to preach the gospel in this city. You see, the Apostle Paul didn't run from cities like this. He didn't run from wicked and immoral cities. He didn't run from cities that were even full of idolatry and sexual immorality. No, Paul saw cities like that and said, I got to go preach there. I got to go preach in a place like that, Paul said. And so we go back to our scripture reading in Acts 17. In Acts 17 in verse number 3, the Bible says that upon arriving in Thessalonica, the Apostle Paul the Apostle Paul began preaching the gospel. The Apostle Paul went into the synagogue of the Jews and he told them about Jesus. He reasoned with them from the scriptures. He explained and gave them evidence that Jesus was the Messiah who has suffered and died and been raised from the dead. Paul did that. He preached that message for three straight Sabbaths and to the glory of God, the result of that was many people were converted. Many Thessalonians were converted. Many of them became disciples and followers of Jesus. And a local church was even planted in this city. In fact, like many of the local churches that the Apostle Paul planted throughout the world at this time, this local church would also experience persecution. This local church would also face trials, and sufferings and opposition from enemies of the gospel. We see that as early as verse number five in that chapter, right? Going back to Acts 17 and verse five. Notice how in verse number five, the Bible says that after many of the Thessalonians were converted, some angry and jealous Jews began to persecute them. They began to do things that made their lives very difficult. They actually formed a mob. And they went into a Christian named Jason's home. And they drug Jason and some other Christians out of his home and they threw them in jail. I submit that appreciating that little bit of background information given to us in the book of Acts is absolutely critical to being able to really appreciate what is driving the Apostle Paul to write this first letter that we're reading this year and our daily Bible reading. For those of you who are part of this church family, you know that as part, this year as part of our mission to grow and mature for the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we're reading this year in our Bible reading many of the inspired letters written by the Apostle Paul. We're actually reading eight of Paul's letters, and the first letter we're reading this year is 1 Thessalonians. We're going to read first. We're reading First Thessalonians right now. Many scholars consider First Thessalonians to be the first inspired letter that was written by the Apostle Paul and maybe even the first book to be included in the canon of New Testament scripture. 
This letter, 1 Thessalonians, was written to this church that we can read about here in Acts chapter 17. And the main purpose for this letter was to encourage and comfort and motivate these Christians who were enduring persecution to hang in there and keep going and persevere in the cause of Jesus Christ. You see, when the Apostle Paul first left these Christians back in Acts 17, they were in a lot of trouble. They were in a lot of trouble. They were facing opposition and persecution for their faith. But when Paul learned later from Timothy that despite the fact that they were being persecuted and going through all kinds of trials for their faith, they were continuing to be faithful and they growing and they were doing the Lord's work and they were continuing to, to do the things that Christians should do. When Paul heard that good news, he had to write them this letter. He had to write them 1 Thessalonians. He had to give them some words of encouragement and thanksgiving and answers to spiritual questions that they had. This is essentially what drove Paul to write this book that we're reading right now in our daily Bible reading. But the question is this. The question is, what relevance does that have to us today? What relevance does this have to me and to you today, I mean, why should we read and care about this letter? Well, why should we read and care about First Thessalonians? I mean, we don't live in the time of the first century. We don't live 2,000 years ago during the time of the Roman Empire. We're not some newly planted church by the Apostle Paul that is facing intense level of persecution. Why should we immerse ourselves in reading a book like this? Well, I want to suggest this morning that there are at least four reasons why we need to read, read a book like this. There are at least four reasons why this 2,000-year-old letter is still relevant to the people of God, even in our time today. And the first reason why, the first reason why is because it contains a message about repentance. It contains a powerful message, a powerful message about repentance. When you go in your Bible to 1 Thessalonians, you might as well put your Bible marker there this morning because the vast majority of our study is going to be coming from 1 Thessalonians. And so we're going to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, and we're going to look at verse number 6. And in verse number 6, the Apostle Paul, he said to these Christians, he says, you also became imitators of us. And of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and a true God. So I want to highlight this morning, I want to highlight in this point, verse number nine in this chapter. Notice how after telling us that these Christians were imitators of the apostles and the Lord and they were being persecuted for their faith in verse six. And I, after also telling us that they had become an example to many other believers in that region and they were very zealous about the work of evangelism in verses seven and eight. In verse number nine, Paul talks about repentance. He talks about 
repentance. He tells us about the repentance of the Thessalonians. He tells us that the repentance of the Thessalonians didn't merely involve having a feeling. It didn't merely involve feeling bad and, and guilty about their sins. It didn't merely involve admitting that they had done wrong and taking full responsibility for their actions. Instead, Paul says that their repentance involved action. It involved change and reformation. It involved them turning away from their sins and doing better for the Lord. That is exactly what Paul means when he says they turned away from idols. That is exactly what Paul means when he says that they turned away from false worship. That is exactly what Paul means when he says that they turned away from the false gods of their culture and they began worshiping a one true and living God. When the Thessalonians obeyed the gospel, Paul tells us that they repented. They repented. They changed. They stopped doing wrong. They stopped doing evil and sinful things and they started doing right. They truly repented when they came to the Lord. And you know who else needs to truly repent? People today. People in the valley today. People across the state and across this country today. People across the globe today. You see, as long as this world continues to stand because people sin, Repentance will always be necessary. Repentance will always be critical. Repentance will always be a, a, a relevant message to people across the globe. The Apostle Peter tells us that, if you remember, in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9. In 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9, Peter says, The Lord is not slow about his promise. As some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to what? For all to come to repentance. Peter says God wants everybody to repent. And remember the Apostle Paul preached that in Athens. At the Areopagus, In Acts 17 and verse 30. In Acts 17 and verse 30 Paul says that God is now. God is now today. He's now declaring to men that people everywhere should repent. Paul is saying that God wants every person across the globe Every person of every race, every culture, every background, they must repent. And then go in your Bible, please. Keep your Bible marker at 1 Thessalonians. We're going to come back there, okay? But go to Acts chapter 2. You know where I'm going in Acts 2. You remember how as Peter stands before a crowd of thousands in the city of Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. He tells them about Jesus. He tells them that Jesus is the risen Savior, that he is the Messiah who was crucified but raised again. And in verse number 37, it says, Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said, Repent. Repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Notice how after hearing the question of what shall we do, the implication is what shall we do to be saved? What shall we do to be right with this risen Savior? After hearing that question, notice how Peter, notice how Peter, he doesn't just tell them to get baptized. 
He, he doesn't just tell them to go get immersed. He doesn't say, OK, you got faith. You believe you've been pierced in your heart. So let's go find us a baptistry right now. Let's go ahead and get you immersed in some water. Notice how Peter doesn't say that. Peter doesn't say that. Peter wasn't just eager to get these people to the water. Peter wasn't just eager to get these people to the baptistry. Peter wasn't just ready to say, well, I want to baptize a bunch of people so we can say that we baptize so many people today. No, that's not what Peter did here. Don't get me wrong. While baptism is important, while it is essential, while it is absolutely necessary for us to have our sins washed away by the blood of Jesus. Notice how before even talking about baptism, Peter first talked about repentance. Peter said, repent. And be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. Notice how according to Peter, repentance is a prerequisite for Bible baptism. According to Peter, repentance must be done before a person is baptized. I submit that when we fail to see that and promote that like Peter does here, we don't help people get right with God. We don't help people become truly converted. We don't help people become true disciples. We don't help people become what Paul helped the Thessalonians become, according to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. You see, the people Paul brought to the Lord in Thessalonica, they repented. They turned away from sin. They turned away from idols. They changed and reform their lives to the will of God. You know who else did that? The people in Corinth did that. Well, you go in your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 now. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul talked to some other people that he had brought to the Lord, but these people were in Achaia. They were in Corinth. And in 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 9, in 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 9, Paul says, Well, do you not know that the unrighteous would not inherit the kingdom of God. Well, who are the unrighteous, Paul? Paul says, don't you be deceived. Don't you be deceived by your culture. Don't you be deceived by your society. Don't you be deceived by your politicians, by your courts. Paul says, don't you be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Watch verse 11. Such were some of you. But you were washed. But you were sanctified. But you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. I want to highlight that language. That's found at the beginning of verse number 11. Notice how Paul says, such were some of you. That language, such were some of you, implies that the Corinthian Christians, they used to do those things, but they don't do them anymore. They don't do that stuff anymore. They stopped that stuff. They gave up that stuff. They repented. They repented. That's what these people did. They did just like the people in Thessalonica. And what I just want you to see is this book we're reading right now, it is a very relevant book because it talks about something that God will always require when people sin. It talks about repentance. 
It talks about turning away from evil behavior, turning away from sin, having godly sorrow, and then doing better in the service of God. This book talks about repentance, but not only does it talk about repentance, you know what else it has a lot to say about? It also has a lot to say about relationships. Relationships, particularly relationships among people like us, brothers and sisters in Christ. And we see this throughout the book. For example, go back to 1 Thessalonians if you don't mind, and I want to show you something beginning in verse number 2. If you remember the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul planted this church on his second preaching journey, and he really cared about these people. I mean, he really loved these people. He was worried about their spiritual condition whenever he was forced out of the city. And so in verse number two, we see hints of that when he says in chapter one and verse two, we give thanks to God always for all of you making mention of you in our prayers. Paul says, I'm always praying for you. I'm always praying for you. Drop down now, please, to verse number or chapter two and verse number seven. Chapter two and verse seven. Paul says that when he was among these people, he was gentle. He was gentle. And he treated them, he says, as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Look at verse 11. In verse 11, he says that he exhorted them and encouraged them and implored them as a father would do his own children. And then in chapter 3, verse number 6, Paul says that when Timothy caught up with him eventually and gave him a good report of their spiritual condition, he says that at the end of that verse, he longed to see them. He longed to see them. He longed to be with them again. There is no doubt after reading these verses and so many others that these Christians really had a special place in Paul's heart. Paul really loved these Christians. He cared about these people. He had no problem, he had no problem emphasizing to them just how much he valued their relationship. This letter has a lot to say about Paul's relationship with these Christians, but not only does it have a lot to say about their relationship, it also has a lot to say about our relationship. Our relationship, the kind of relationship that God wants us to have with each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. For example, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, Paul says there that God wants us to love each other. God wants us to excel in our love for each other. God wants us to grow in our love for each other every single day. God also wants us to appreciate each other. He wants us to esteem one another. He wants us to show esteem for the men who lead us and have charge over us. That's talking about the shepherds, the pastors, the elders in the church. God also wants us to live peaceably with each other. That means that God wants us to get along with each other. And avoid fussing and fighting and being divided and being in constant competition with each other. And he also wants us to admonish the unruly among us. And encourage the faint-hearted, encourage the discouraged, help the weak, be patient with each other, and make sure that we avoid harming each other. Make sure we avoid getting revenge and retaliation and returning evil for evil. You see, that's the kind of stuff that Paul has to say in this letter. And let me tell you something, my friends, that's the kind of stuff we need to hear. That's the kind of stuff we need to hear even today. 
we need to hear what Paul has to say about relationships because the fact of the matter is this church and every church across this country and across the globe is made up of people. Churches are made up of people. Churches are made up of people who sometimes have egos. And they are full of pride. And they are very opinionated and they're very sensitive and often suspicious. And they can become angry with each other and bitter and hostile and engage in petty fusses about traditions and matters of judgment and major in the minors. You see, because churches are made up of flawed people. What the Apostle Paul says in this book about relationships, it's always going to be relevant. It's always going to be necessary. It's always going to be needed to be rehearsed and restudied over and over again. It's even going to need to be preached and emphasized from this pulpit from time to time because it matters to God how we treat each other. It matters to God how we treat our shepherds. It matters to God how we treat the new converts. It matters to God how we treat the needy and the poor and the weak and how we handle diversities and, and esteem one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. First Thessalonians is a relevant letter even today because it talks about repentance. And it talks about relationships among brethren. And then thirdly, you know what else it talks about? It talks about sexual immorality. It talks about sexual immorality. Go in your Bible back to chapter 4, please. Let's read, beginning with verse 1. We're going to read this, this portion of the book in a few days. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 1, Paul says, finally, finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus... That as you receive from us instruction how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. Do better. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. That each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. Not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God and that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter because the Lord is the avenger in all things. Just we also told you before and solemnly warned you for God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So he who rejects this is not rejecting man. But the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Notice how in this time in this time. 2,000 years ago, in the time when Paul was writing that letter, in the time of the Roman Empire, in the time of the apostles and the prophets, Paul says that the Roman world was full of gross sexual immorality. It was full of all kinds of gross sexual sins, just like our world today. But notice how Paul told these brethren that despite that, God wanted them to be different. God wanted them to rise above their immoral culture and abstain from sexual sins. God wanted them to stay away from things like fornication and adultery and other forms of impurity and use their vessels or their bodies to glorify God and bring him honor. 
That's what Paul tells these brethren there in those verses. And I think it's pretty obvious. I think it's pretty obvious how that message is also a relevant message to us today, right? I mean, living in a culture and a society where for the vast majority of people, they believe that homosexuality and cohabitation and sexual fantasies about people who are not their spouse is morally acceptable behavior we need to consider over and over again what Paul has to say about biblical morality in those verses. We need to consider over and over again that no matter what the majority of people in our culture and society say today, as Christians, we need to excel. We need to excel in matters of sexual purity. We need to grow in matters of sexual purity. We need to strive every single day to do better in matters of sexual purity. That means that for those of you here this morning who are single, and when I say you're single, I mean you're not married. For those of you here who are single this morning, this means that you need to abstain from fornication. You need to abstain from having sex. And understand that sex is only reserved for the marriage bed. You need to abstain from sexual immorality if you are single. And for those of us who are married, we also need to abstain from sexual immorality. We need to abstain from adultery and lusting after someone who's not our spouse. We need to avoid seeking attention from people who are not our spouse and, and getting close to people who are not our spouse and trying to get our hearts to flutter or get their house to flutter, to get their hearts to flutter, and they're not our spouse. We need to avoid getting close to people of the opposite sex that we're not married to. And we also need to avoid homosexuality because regardless of what our society says, homosexuality is a sin and it will always be a sin. We need to avoid homosexuality and pornography and immodesty and using language that is full of sexual filth. We need to remember that our bodies don't really belong to us, but they belong to God. They belong to the creator. They belong to Jesus and his Holy Spirit, and we need to use our bodies to be holy and to use them for God's glory. This is a relevant book because it talks about something we're dealing with today, sexual immorality. But then let me give you one more thing to think about, and let me suggest this is a relevant book because it talks a lot about the return of Jesus. It talks a lot about the return of Jesus. I mean, you should have noticed that in chapter 1 in verse 10. Did you notice that when you did your Bible reading in verse 10, when after talking about how these Thessalonians repented, in verse 10, he says, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. Notice how that verse is talking about the return of Jesus. But then go to chapter 4. You know, I've read chapter 4, beginning with verse number 13, at many funerals for departed saints. But I want to suggest that these verses are more useful to us than just at the funeral home. And so we read, beginning with verse 13, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep so that you will not grieve as to the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, 
Even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself would descend from heaven with a shout. With the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be called together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Now, as to the times and epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you, for you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they're saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly, like labor pains upon a woman with a child, and they will not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness that the day will overtake you like a thief. For you're all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. Therefore, comfort one another, or encourage one another, and build up one another, just as you also are doing. Now, I realize, I realize. Now, that was a lengthy section of scripture we just read together, but I needed to read those verses because they are critical to being able to understand some of Paul's motivation for even writing this letter in the first place. You see, evidently, these Christians, these Christians in Thessalonica, they wanted to know exactly when the Lord was going to come back. They wanted to know exactly when Jesus was going to personally return, evidently, some of them seemed to have believed that that had already happened and they missed it. Maybe they thought that Jesus had come back in some spiritual way and they missed his return. They had a misunderstanding about the return of Jesus. But notice how Paul, Paul sets the record straight. Paul teaches the truth. Paul tells these Christians that the Lord will personally come back. He will personally return. They didn't miss it. But when the Lord comes back, it's going to be like a thief in the night. It's going to be like labor pains that come upon a woman with child suddenly. That means that a lot of people are going to be caught unprepared. They're going to be caught off guard. They're not going to be ready. For the return of Jesus, in fact, for those who are not ready for this day, for those who are caught off guard, Paul says that those people are going to experience judgment. They're going to experience the wrath of God. They're going to experience eternal judgment and destruction from God. And if we want to make sure that we're not in that category of people, then you know what we need to do? We need to do everything Paul says in verses 6 through 11 of chapter 5. We need to make sure that we're spiritually alert. We need to make sure that we're sober and that we're dressed in things like faith and hope and love and that we're spiritually awake and that we are encouraging each other all the time. What we don't need to do is be foolish. What we don't need to do is be distracted with this world. What we don't need to do is live our lives oblivious to the reality that this event Paul talks about here, it could occur at any moment. 
Now, these are just a few reasons why this book is a relevant book to us today. And if you want an additional tool to help you in your reading of this book, then I want to personally invite you to join our Thursday Zoom study that will be beginning this week. For those of you who are members of this church family, for those of you who are members of this church family, beginning this Thursday at 7 o'clock in the evening, we're going to have a Zoom Bible study on our Bible reading. We're going to have about an hour of discussion from the weekly reading, and we're going to spend some time in prayer. We're going to talk about the text together. We're going to try to talk about things that we're noticing, maybe for the first time. And then we're going to spend about 10 minutes or so taking prayer requests. And you can register. If you're a member here, you can register to join these studies online. Brother Brian did a great job putting, making this very easy, putting a link there on the website. You just go to the member section of the website. You can easily sign up for this and these discussions. You can make comments. You can ask questions you can contribute to the discussion or you know what else you could do you can just sit there with your camera off in your pajamas drinking a cup of coffee and just listening to what everybody else has to say you don't have to say anything at all but this is going to be available to you this is going to be available to help you in your bible reading and we're going to be doing these studies every thursday the rest of the year at seven o'clock and I hope as your schedule allows, and I know many of you are very busy, but I hope as your schedule allows, you'll join it. I hope you'll be part of it. I hope you'll take advantage of a wonderful opportunity we have to do exactly what our theme says this year, and that is grow to spiritual maturity. For now, I just want to close this lesson by asking you, are you prepared? Are you prepared? Are you prepared for the great day that's coming? Are you prepared for the return of our Lord? Are you prepared for the return of Jesus, even if it occurred on this day when a lot of people are getting ready to watch the Super Bowl? If you sit there this morning and realize you're not ready for the return of Jesus, you have an opportunity to get ready on this day. You have an opportunity to have faith in our Lord and repent, repent of sin and be baptized in water for the forgiveness of sins. If you've done those things, but you know you haven't been living as a faithful Christian, and you as a Christian are not prepared for the great day that's coming, if you need to repent and have us pray with you and for you, if there's anyone here this morning who needs to do what the song says and get ready for the coming of the Lord, come to the front right now. Let's stand.